The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born in 1930 to a real estate broker whose last name became famous thanks to a Supreme Court case challenging racial restrictive covenants. She died just 34 years later of pancreatic cancer. Her name was Lorraine Hansberry, and she was eight years old when her father filed his case, which demanded equal treatment for black people, arguing that white people should not be allowed to get together and sign agreements preventing black people from buying homes in their neighborhood. When Lorraine was 10, the Supreme Court threw out that case on procedural grounds, but the spirit of activism lived through her. When she was in her late 20s, her play A Raisin in the Sun became the first play by an African-American woman to be produced on Broadway. She was famous now, and she used the rest of her remaining years to continue her fight against injustice. She was also the godmother to Nina Simone's daughter, Lisa. And Nina Simone, the singer you hear in the background, based this famous song on Lorraine Hansberry and a famous phrase that Lorraine Hansberry delivered in a speech to young, talented black students. They were 16 winners of a creative writing contest. Dying of cancer, Hansberry left her hospital bed to go and see them. I wanted to come to see you, she said, because you are young, gifted, and black. Look at the work that awaits you. Write if you will, but write about the world as it is and as you think it ought to be and must be. The nation needs your gifts. Young, gifted, and black, she said. She said she could think of no more dynamic combination. Work hard at it, she said. Care about it. The Lorraine Hansberry story, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. I'm glad you're here. Lorraine Hansberry. What a brief life, but so full and rich. Some people get more done in their 20s than the rest of us are able to manage in a lifetime. That's what it is to be young and gifted, I guess. Talent rises to the top, and when talent meets its purpose and finds its artistic expression, its means of artistic expression, great things can happen. And young and gifted and black, proudly black, using black as a term when it wasn't common to do so, Lorraine Hansberry paved the way for a lot of what came afterwards. A Raisin in the Sun was produced in 1959 on Broadway. The film, Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee, oh, what a great pair they are. Everyone in that movie is fantastic. Lou Gossett Jr. is in there, young and skinny. Ruby Dee is an anchor. She's so good. And Sidney Poitier is a Hollywood star, like Brando or... Denzel or Jack Nicholson, where there's charisma every second they're on the screen, and yet there's a power that's ready to emerge, to explode. Those guys I mentioned, 
have that quality. De Niro is another one, but especially the young Brando and the young Poitier. They walk like lions. You can't take your eyes off them. They're so graceful and beautiful, even when they're just walking or sitting and listening or drinking a glass of water, whatever they're doing. And then the power comes, the fury and the power. That's a star. Sidney Poitier, he's still alive, by the way. He's 94 years old now. He was the biggest box office star in America in 1967. That movie, A Raisin in the Sun, came out in 1961, one of the key movies that sent him on his way. Lorraine Hansberry, at that point, had three years left to live, sadly. But even though she died young, we have plenty to talk about with her life. She had a rich life. I'll confess that I'm starting over on this one, which is rare for me. Usually I turn on the mic and talk for about an hour, and that's it. Upload the episode, get ready for the next one. No time to dwell. We still haven't <laughs> still haven't done Henry James, people. Whenever someone emails or comments and says, well, why haven't you done so-and-so? I just think, well, sure, yes, he's on our list, or she's on our list, or that book is on our list. We can't do every author all at once. So, got to please the people. Got to keep moving. Jack Wilson's a hustler. That's the kind of prize I used to win when I was an athlete in my school days. I was never MVP. I was never all whatever. A lot of honorable mentions. A lot of academic athlete awards. A lot of most improved or team spirit awards. A lot of best hustle. So that's who you get here. Jack Wilson, the hustler. Not unlike some of the characters in A Raisin in the Sun. As we'll see, we'll get to that later. Anyway, this episode had a false start because I spent almost an hour talking about the restrictive covenant court cases as they wound their way through the court system and made their way up to the Supreme Court. There's a fascinating history there, which takes us from the Civil War and abolition, well, through the through the Constitution this, at the beginning, the founding, even before takes us on a history of slavery in the United States, but it really takes us on a history from the Civil War and abolition through the 14th Amendment and the passage of that, through the Great Migration, through some very clever lawyering by the NAACP and some Supreme Court rulings and some Supreme Court foot-dragging. It's really a great story, but after about 45 minutes of rattling on about that and then saying, let's turn now to Lorraine Hansberry. Well, that's not going to do, is it? Not on the History of Literature podcast, where go straight at them is our new motto. So let's go straight at them. Let's take a break. We'll come back with Lorraine Hansberry's life. Take another quick break. Talk about her masterpiece, A Raisin in the Sun, including a little discussion on the universal versus the particular in literature, which became important to the reception of A Raisin in the Sun and frustrated Lorraine Hansberry in certain ways. And then we will be all finished, done and dusted, ready for the next one. Never mind the maneuvers, Jack Wilson. Go straight at them. Lorraine Hansberry's life after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let's start with her parents. The Hansberries trace their roots back to the South. Lorraine's mother, Nana Louise Perry, also called Nanny, was born in Tennessee. The daughter of a minister and his wife, Carl Augustus Hansberry, Lorraine's father was born in Mississippi. He and Nana moved to Chicago as part of the Great Migration as six million former slaves and the children and grandchildren of former slaves moved north to the urban northeast, finding work in factories and offices and the homes of wealthy white northerners. Nana, or Nanny, taught driving school and worked as a local politician. She was a ward committee woman. Carl was a successful real estate broker and a political activist. Lorraine was the youngest of four children. When she was eight, Carl bought a house on the south side of Chicago in Washington Park for the family to move into. Local white residents treated them with hostility. And a homeowners association came by and filed an injunction for them to vacate their home. Their case went to the Supreme Court which upheld the lower court rulings on some procedural grounds. They didn't consider the constitutional question of whether these agreements violated the 14th Amendment. And the Hansberries had to leave. Carl, frustrated, tried to run for Congress and lost. And the racism in America was getting to him. He planned to move the family to Mexico. He visited there as part of the plan. He had a brain hemorrhage while he was there, and he died young at age 50. Lorraine was 15. So she had grown up in an atmosphere steeped in issues, frustration at injustice, and determination to fight and improve society. A determination not to sit by or be quiet or give up. The Hansberry home was visited by prominent black figures like Paul Robeson, Duke Ellington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Jesse Owens, and Langston Hughes. Hang on to that last name in particular. That will return as part of Lorraine's story. Carl's brother was a famous professor who founded the African Civilization section of the History Department at Howard University in D.C. Lorraine grew up with all this around her. She was a good student and went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and she was ready to fight injustice there, too. This was 1948 when she arrived, and the Supreme Court finally ruled that racially restrictive covenants were unconstitutional. Maybe it was the experience of World War II. I'm looking at the difference now between their reluctance to rule this on these grounds in 
40 and their willingness to do it in 1948. What happened? Well, World War II, of course, and maybe it was the experience of World War II with the contributions of black American soldiers who helped to remind or educate white people that black people were Americans too, willing to fight and die for the American flag. Or maybe it was the news from Nazi Germany and the education or reminder of where white supremacy can lead. Or maybe it was the realization, finally, you'd have to be kind of blind not to see it, that there was a central hypocrisy in Supreme Court jurisprudence on this issue. They agreed that the state could not pass a law saying that a black person could not own a particular home, that that was clearly prohibited by the 14th Amendment. That was a, a ruling they made decades earlier. States can't do that. Can't pass a law that says a black person can't own a home in this particular neighborhood. But for decades, the Supreme Court had said, well, private citizens making agreements on their own to to say we're not going to sell our house to a black person, well, that's not the state, is it? That's not really prohibited by the Constitution, the 14th Amendment. That's, that's not the... That's individuals. If people want to do that, what can we do about it? They're just people who want their neighborhoods to be a certain way, like, like those groups that say you can't put a swimming pool in your front yard or you have to shovel your sidewalk when it snows. There's no state law here. It's not the state preventing it. It's just a private group of people, and we let private citizens do what they want, mostly. So that was the rule for decades. That was why the Hansberries lost their case. And finally, in 1948, the Supreme Court recognized that even if these are private agreements, and even if the Constitution doesn't prohibit the private agreements from forming, these private agreements are calling on the mechanics and the might of the state to enforce them. They use the state courts to get their injunction. They use the sheriff to go out and effectuate the eviction. That's state action. And states can't do it because of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court, all white men, of course, for 180 years, the Supreme Court was all male wasps with a handful of Catholics here and there. The first Jewish justice was appointed in 1916. The first African-American wouldn't come until 1967. Thurgood Marshall, the first woman, not until 1981, the first Hispanic, 2009. We're still waiting for the first Native American. So when the Supreme Court considered matters of racial justice, they had a particular point of view. In 1948, when they were considering racially restrictive covenants, three of the justices recused themselves because they themselves owned homes with a racially restrictive covenant. They were... (laughs) that's the struggle, people. So here I go again. I'd better stop now because I could talk about this for hours. What's interesting for the Lorraine Hansberry story is that she based her play on this central issue, what it's like for a black family to plan to move to a house, a dream house that happens to be in a white neighborhood, only to have that pulled out from under them. By the time she wrote the play, the Supreme Court had declared that unconstitutional, but that didn't mean the issue was over. For one thing, she believed that it had led in part to her father's early death, and he never lived to see the change. And of course, the issue itself was still alive. White people weren't giving up so easy. They could find ways to make black people not want to live near them, and they could still 
tacitly agree not to sell to a black family. They could still make all the arguments as they do in the play. And we'll get there. The arguments for why this isn't really so bad. This is just a matter of of people choosing how they want to live and trying to be like people with whom they have something in common. And isn't that just better? The key is this. Lorraine was not just advocating for a change in a particular policy. She was describing a state of mind. And the state of mind continues before, during, and after a Supreme Court ruling. When she was at Madison as a student attending college, she protested injustice in many forms, and she helped to integrate one of the school dorms, which had been segregated. In 1948, she campaigned for progressive candidate Henry A. Wallace for president. He was an Iowa farmer who had been FDR's vice president, but he lost to Truman. In 1949, she went to Mexico to study painting at the University of Guadalajara. And in 1950, age 20 years old, she went to New York City to become a writer. She lived in Harlem and wrote for a black newspaper, and she was back in the circle with W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, one of the young, talented people among those prominent figures, those legends. She was in the Communist Party, as were many of her fellow justice seekers. This was the Communist Party that came out of the Depression before the horrors of Stalinism took over what it meant to be in the Communist Party. She wrote poems about civil rights heroes and famous trials. She wrote articles about colonialism and imperialism, and she focused on the plight of women and the impoverished, as well as the plight of black people. She was also a closeted lesbian, writing about it in her journal, which was not published for decades after her death. She seems to have been moving toward being more open about that side of her. This was not an easy time to be gay, though, to be openly gay, and she was conflicted. I think it's fair to say that we don't know exactly how things would have gone for her because she died so young, but there are signs that her lesbianism made her feel isolated and reasons to believe that had she lived longer, she'd have felt freer to be the person she was. She had lesbian friends and a few lovers toward the end of her life, and she wrote that she was, quote, committed to this homosexuality thing, end quote. But for most of her life, she was wrestling with this. In 1953, she married a Jewish man, Robert Nemiroff. They lived in Greenwich Village. They were both rabble-rousers, committed to causes of social justice. The night before their wedding, they were out protesting the execution of the Rosenbergs. He was a songwriter, and one of his songs hit it big, Cindy O. Cindy which gave Lorraine some economic freedom, and she immediately put that to good use, writing A Raisin in the Sun in 1957. That same year, she and Robert separated, and they were divorced in 1962, but they remained close. He was the literary executor of her writings and was the steward and at times the protector. He kept some of her journals blocked for 50 years, especially the passages about her being a lesbian. But he generally looked after her works for the rest of his life. A Raisin in the Sun takes its title from a Langston Hughes poem called Harlem, or A Dream Deferred. A Dream Deferred could have been the title of the play, but that's a little too on the nose. And anyway, A Raisin in the Sun is closer to the situation that we see in the play. Here's the whole poem. 
Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? A raisin in the sun. A raisin in the sun here is sort of the example of a dream that gets put off until it's worthless. But there's a question mark as well. It doesn't have to be this way. There are other possibilities for our dream that's deferred. The dream gets postponed. In this short poem, it has seven bad outcomes, depending on how you count. Seven potentially bad outcomes. Deferred dreams are like time bombs in this poem. They can fester. They can dry up. They can run like oozing pus from a wound. They can stink. They can crust. They can sag. And they can explode. This was 1951 when Hughes published this poem. Let's just look at the small dream of wanting to be able to buy a house in any neighborhood you want. That might be a small dream might sound like a small dream. It's a dream, and it's not so small, actually. Owning a home, deciding where your family will live, feeling the autonomy of working hard to earn money and then putting your money where you want, building your castle, that's not small at all. That's a giant dream. It's the biggest dream most of us get. As big as an artist wanting to be an artist or a high school student wanting to go to college or a factory worker wanting to be an entrepreneur. For a real estate salesman like Lorraine's father, It's his stock in trade. Buying property, even if there are white neighbors. Well, if it's the neighborhood you want to live in, why not? And the Supreme Court in the 1920s said, maybe someday, but not now. In 1940, they said it again directly to Carl Hansberry, maybe someday, but not now. And then he died. His dream had been deferred. Not because he deferred it or chose to defer it, but because the rest of the world had forced him to wait. You can imagine Lorraine Hansberry reading this poem by Langston Hughes. He's about the same age as her father, a few years older. No, a few years younger. Reading this poem in 1951 and thinking, yes, that was my father. A dream deferred. It did all this to him. It festered, it oozed, it dried up. It was a heavy burden, his dream deferred, and it exploded. He died of a brain hemorrhage in his brain. We don't know for sure what caused it. We never can, but we know what weighed heaviest on him and his mind. It was racism in America, so bad and so frustrating that first he left the South for the North, and so bad and so frustrating in the North that he was looking to move to Mexico. In 1957, She was writing her play that had this at its heart. What happens to a man with a dream, a whole family with a dream, when those dreams are pulled away or undermined or postponed? And she wrote to Langston Hughes the most beautiful letter. She wanted his okay to use his poem. Dear Mr. Hughes, she wrote, I am the author of a three-act dramatic play on Negro family life. I have tentatively chosen as a title for this work a line from one of your poems. The line is, a raisin in the sun. 
I should be extremely gratified and complimented to receive your consent for the use of this line as a title. Hughes replied almost two months later, kind of a long time to wait, since she was writing from Greenwich Village and he was living in Harlem. (laughs) The letters didn't have to travel too far. He wrote, Dear Mrs. Nemeroff, that was her stationery, although she had signed her name Lorraine Hansberry, with Nemeroff in parentheses. Dear Mrs. Nemeroff, I can't recall whether I answered your letter of February 8th requesting permission to use the line A Raisin in the Sun as a title for your three-act play. Then there's an asterisk there. He writes, I am happy to give my permission for its use and send you all my good wishes for its success. Sincerely yours, Langston Hughes. That's the part that's typed, as her letter to him had been. And then in a handwritten note, he follows his handwritten asterisk, which is just an X, and he writes at the bottom of the page, I was in the hospital when your note arrived, and then everything got piled up. Apologizing. He was there for opening night of the Broadway performance in 1959. The play was a smash hit, winning prizes, huge audiences, a Hollywood film. There was one more bit of correspondence between them worth mentioning. Lorraine Hansberry Nemeroff writes to Langston Hughes, quote, Dear, dear Langston, like a whole generation of people, you have been my favorite living poet. You are swiftly becoming one of my favorite people. Your thoughtfulness across country in sending me clips about the play has really been marvelous. And now, your sweet note. Why don't we get together more often? We would love to have you to dinner soon, not greens. I will honor your warning on that tradition, but drinks and steak and conversation. Did I ever tell you what a moving thing it was that you should have been the last person to see Richard Wright? Something so dramatic about it because of what the two of you have been to Negro Letters. There are also so many things I would like to ask about. The younger generation of Negro writers must learn to honor the mentors among our writers and argue, too. Warmest regards, Lorraine. To honor and to argue. Hughes was born in 1902. He was about 28 years older than Lorraine. Lorraine was ready to take her place among the next generation of writers. But of course, it was not to be, or not to be for long. He might have been older, but he outlived her. If he had handed her the torch to carry, and if she ran with it for a while, it was soon one that she had to hand back. take a quick break and come back with our look at what we do have from that period where she was carrying the torch one of the great plays of the 20th century in America A Raisin in the Sun in the The Raisin in the Sun was written in 1957 and debuted on Broadway in 1959. It was an unusual play for its time, a black cast with only one white character, who plays a kind of Hannah Arendtian figure of the banality of evil, although 
This play was made a few years before Hannah Arendt coined that phrase. The nearly all-black cast made the investment risky, and it took over a year for the producer to raise the money to bring it to Broadway. And then it was a smash, with audiences enthralled by the drama and by Sidney Poitier's electric performance. It played for 530 shows, with the great Ossie Davis taking over for Poitier partway through the run. By 1983, Frank Rich could write in the New York Times that a raisin in the sun changed American theater forever. I'm going to base my interpretation of it on the film, which came out a couple of years later, mostly starring the original cast. Hansberry herself wrote the screenplay. It's set in a Chicago apartment where the younger family, a black family, of course, are living in cramped conditions. All the characters have a dream, you might say, although our focus is primarily on Walter, who's dreaming the hardest, but he's not the only one. Dreams are in conflict, and dreams are within reach. Walter's father has died, and his mother, the family matriarch, Lena, is about to receive a check from the insurance company for $10,000. You know the line about how there are only two real stories? One is a stranger comes to town, and the other is a man goes on a journey. Well, in a way, the check is like the stranger coming to town. Here's a family that has lived in poverty for generations, and suddenly there is extra money And maybe that means some kind of escape is possible. It's going to change the way things are for these people. There are some dreams that can perhaps be realized. But what? Which dream? How should the money be used? That's the question for the grandmother. And here's what she's faced with. Let's put you in her shoes. You've worked hard for years, starting out in the South, living in the era when slavery has transitioned to its harsh aftermath. You and your husband have always dreamed of owning a house. You have two kids. Now they've grown. Your husband dies, leaving you some money. You move in with your children. The brother and sister live together, and so does the brother's wife and son. There isn't a lot of room for, what is that, the five of you, and your daughter-in-law is about to learn that she's pregnant again. It seems like some space would be good. Why not a house? So there's one potential use for the $10,000, a down payment on some nice little house where you can garden and your grandson and, and soon your new grandchild can play in the backyard and have a room that's not just a bed in the living room. Here's another good use for the money. Surely your daughter is attending medical school. She wants to be a doctor. She's a little artistic, a little creative. She's maybe not the best student. Sometimes she skips class. She doesn't always stick to what she starts. She's the kind of person who buys musical instruments and goes all out, and then they sit in her closet while she moves on to the next thing. Hmm, boy, do I know how that is. My closet has a bass guitar and fly fishing equipment and golf clubs and all these things I haven't touched for years. Sometimes you just need to get the gear. And anyway, this daughter is still in school. She's meeting some interesting people there, like a friend she meets from Africa, which puts her in a bit of an African phase, which is fascinating to you, the grandmother, the mother. You're an American. It's all you've ever known. But of course, you're interested in how Africans live, too. And although you don't know a whole lot about it, you have respect for her friend and who he is and where he's from. So now we're up to two very good uses for the money, a house for the family that needs more room, and education, tuition payments for the daughter, 
who wants to put the family on a whole new path. Professionals instead of chauffeurs and piecemeal laundry work and other services to white people in their homes. Your husband worked very hard. You both did. And you feel very loyal to his memory in figuring out how best to spend this money that came from his death. He worked all of his life and died, literally died, so that you could have this money. But there's a third piece, a third potential dream. Your son, Walter, has one. He's your husband's son, too. He's followed in his father's footsteps as best he could. He works as a chauffeur as well, but he is not happy about it. Not that your husband was happy about work, but he put his head down, put his shoulder into it. He was working to make life better for the family. Walter is doing the same, but he has a harder time. He has a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. He doesn't want to work for another person. He wants to be his own boss. He spends his nights at the bar with some friends who have the same ideas. How do you become your own boss? How do you live in America if you aren't your own boss? You work hard, yes, but to be your own boss, you have to take some risks. You assert yourself as someone who's got bigger things in mind, who's not going to settle for being that chauffeur. You dare to dream. But it's the riskiest of the three uses of the money, or at least it looks that way to Lena, the grandmother, and the idea that Walter has for a business. Opening a liquor store does not seem like the greatest use of money to her. Not the greatest investment. Her husband would not be a fan of a plan to open a liquor store. It's risky. And what does that do to the community? It's not exactly a a churchly kind of business. On the other hand, it's killing Walter to be dressing up in a chauffeur's outfit and answering to the boss He's drying up like a raisin in the sun. Andy's festering. Andy's sagging with heaviness. And sometimes he explodes. And now there's money with opportunity. He's ready. What did his father work all his life for if not to see his son taking a risk, but then living with the kind of freedom and joy that being a boss can bring? How many generations have to stifle their dreams before one can be expressed. I won't spoil the rest of the play or the movie, except to say that all three dreams are not exactly what they appear to be at first. None of them are safe bets. And in the course of a couple of hours, we watch as the fortunes of this family rise and fall, sometimes because of the way the deck is stacked against black people in particular, and sometimes because of individual failings or circumstance. The play is about trust and optimism, and family unity in the face of adversity and determination. It's a beautiful play. It's absolutely riveting. And it's worth watching the film for Sidney Poitier alone. So, there was kind of a controversy that came out as critics tried to wrestle with this play and what it meant for American literature and Broadway. And they tripped all over themselves trying to describe whether the play was universal or particular, and they made such a hash out of it that I thought I'd offer some thoughts on this. What do we mean by universal and particular? We say it all the time. What do we mean by that? All works of art have this to some degree, and great works of art are usually a blend of the two, and they get credited as such. When we read about a king in Shakespeare, let's say it's King Lear, we're reading about what it's like to be a king There's a particular situation 
here that most of us don't share. He's an extremely powerful person who is dividing his kingdom. That's not something I myself have ever done with an actual kingdom or will do. I've never been a king. Never been waited on by courtiers. I've never worn a crown. I've never been in the position of dividing my kingdom. I don't talk like him. I don't wear clothes like him. I'm not carried around on a pillow. Not that he is, but you know what I mean. I don't know exactly what it's like to be that person inside those clothes, inside that skin, and yet I can share in the experience because in King Lear, we're also invited to share what it's like to be a father, to wonder if your children truly love you or merely want your money. I haven't worried about that, but I've been on the other side of that with some extended relatives who were concerned about their inheritance and who it was going to and what it meant and who was who deserved it and who was loyal. And we're invited to be in a world in King Lear where you love your children but maybe don't trust them in a world where you're aging and can no longer trust your own grip on reality or a world where you have some power but give it up and maybe wish you hadn't given it up too soon. A world where you have to figure out what to do with your wealth after you're gone, and so on. These are experiences that we see, no matter who we are, we see in our grandparents and parents and eventually feel ourselves. That's universal. Parental love, filial love, loyalty, betrayal, anger, resentment, fear, those are universal ideas, shared emotions. The particular comes with these characters at this time these specific circumstances, their situation is specific to them. The details matter. You can't say, I know exactly how this character feels, or I know exactly what that's like, or I went through the exact same thing, unless you yourself really are close to that person in age, demographics, sibling order, marital status, and so on. Sometimes there's a movie about Woodstock, let's say, and someone says, oh yeah, that's what it's like. They captured it. Or Vietnam. Yes. Yes, I was there. That resonates with me. That's my experience. But the point is, universal and particular are not strictly binary. They're not opposite poles. They're sort of on a sliding scale. Depending on the level of abstraction that you view these things with. I might identify with a character who lives in London, let's say. But that might be because I've lived in a city. And something about being in an urban space strikes a chord with me. You don't have to have the exact same experience to identify with living in a city. Someone else might say, no, no, you're wrong about that. Yes, there's a little about living in a city in general. I get that you identify with that. But living in London is different. It's not like other cities. So what resonated with you was the universal aspects of it. But that doesn't mean you got everything in the play. A Londoner might feel something even more specific. The same thing, a place set in London, can be both universal and particular, depending on the level of abstraction, and that's fair. The problem is, we don't usually make a big deal about this when we go to see a play. We're not surprised. It's not worthy of comment. And what seems to have happened when this play came out in 1959 was that a lot of critics, meaning a lot of white critics, went into the play thinking, ah, yes... We know what we're getting here. We're going to see a particular situation. We will learn something about these people or these issues, almost as if the critics were going to a sermon or a lecture or a National Geographic film. They thought black cast, black author, 
It's about black people in Chicago. Okay, this sounds like we'll be learning a lot about this culture. Look at this. This is how they live. And this will be about a law that needs to change, a situation that can no longer be tolerated. This will be a social drama, as they were called, a protest play. Characters, this is the assumption, characters will be cardboard. They'll deliver arguments. We'll sit and listen and agree or disagree, depending on our politics. And we'll go and write up our review and say, this play is about a law that needs to change. And instead, what happened was the critics found themselves caught up in the story, identifying with the characters. That's the universality part. They said, wait a minute. My parents worked hard for me, and they worried about how I'd turn out. They had dreams for me too, but they were wise enough to have some fear when it looked like I was headed for trouble. Wow. That woman reminds me of my mother. Or, my grandmother felt like that about her husband, loyal to him like that, and she demanded that everyone fear God in her house and so on, or that sister is like my sister, on her way to medical school, but also maybe that's not the right fit for her, or the family struggling to make ends meet reminds me of when I was worried about paying the bills, and so on. And so in their reviews, they wrote about their experience watching the play, and they tried to capture that aspect of the play. Now, what's wrong with that? It's a good thing that they recognize themselves in the play and identify with the characters and that they credit the play for doing that. Here's what's the problem with them. The reviews can be hard to read, some of them, because not because praising the play for having universal themes is an insult to the play or even wrong, but because of the assumption that can underlie that praise. It's a little bit like a white person calling a black person articulate. And we cringe and we frown at the white person because we know that that's an insult. And the white person says, well, what's wrong with saying that the black person is articulate? Isn't that a positive thing? I wasn't trying to insult anyone. I was trying to pay a compliment. My goodness. What's better than to call someone articulate? Speech is, speech is important. Good speech is hard to do. It's like a, a gift. It's important in our society and so on. Right? You've heard this. I wish someone would call me articulate. I wouldn't complain about it. But what's wrong, of course, is what's underlying that compliment. It seems to be expressing some surprise, as if the mouth opened, the words came out, and you were surprised. What does that say about black people that you were surprised? I'm not going to dwell on this because you, you know all this already. That's not the point here. We're talking about 1959, when the critics went to see A Raisin in the Sun, and they wrote reviews and said, whoa, this play is universal. Sidney Poitier plays a struggling young man who happens to be black. One commentator writing later said, it's astonishing how often the phrase happens to be black gets used. Now hold that thought for a moment. It's going to be very important later to the Lorraine Hansberry story. There are problems with this collapse of the universal and the particular. There are problems we've hopefully moved beyond now, but my guess is there are still reviews and reviewers that get this wrong, whether it's about black people or about gay people or whatever category. Disabled. I'm spending time with it because it was important to how A Raisin in the Sun was perceived in its day and because Hansberry herself wrestled with these ideas coming from the critics. Sometimes she laughed about it, but the laughter was not exactly carefree. 
Almost everything I described above when I summarized the play and put you in the shoes of the grandmother is universal at some level of abstraction. I know plenty of poor people of all backgrounds who don't have enough space and can't afford a bigger house. There have been people who said, you know, this is particular, but it's particular to any minority group. That's not exactly right, but I know what they're, they're trying to say. We all know people who are poor. It doesn't matter who you are. You want a bigger house. You wish you didn't have a boss, but who don't have enough money to start a business. That's common too. Or families who have another kid on the way, just when it seems like another mouth to feed is going to be a backbreaker. Or people who go to school, but maybe wish there was a little more room for creative expression in school who struggle with that. These are universal themes. Families who care about each other, but fight. Siblings and parents who struggle with money and inheritance and guilt and accusations. It's universal. It's very universal. You could probably adapt this play and set it in ancient Athens or Tang Dynasty China or Nome, Alaska or wherever. But then there's the particular. If you treat the play as if it could belong to anyone, as if it's not specific to its time and place and people, you would miss some essential elements of the black experience in its time. The way the grandmother was so close to slavery and she and her husband had worked their way up from dire circumstances. The way that shaped her, the way that that experience shaped her thinking about hard work and getting by and God and family. The way the migration to the North took away one way of life and put a family in a Chicago apartment with different kinds of jobs and different opportunities and different challenges and the need to adapt. The way that working as a chauffeur for a white man, not just be a guy who'd rather not have a boss, but a black man looking for pride and self-esteem and fighting every day in a system that refuses to allow him even a small measure of it. The way that the black American student is fascinated by Africa and the way the African is fascinated by African Americans in return and the way the two of them think what if we reunite after 300 years of cultural separation? Is that possible? Is it desirable? Would it work? What would it mean for us? How would we grow? And of course, the way that even a dream within reach can become a dream deferred and how a raisin in the sun can slowly dry up. But sometimes the dream deferred can also explode. That's Universal in one way, but another way it's not universal. It's not the same for everyone in America. When the world is pitted against you, society, the courts, the public, the money, politicians, the police, everyone, you can work all your life and see things jerked away because of a Supreme Court ruling and to almost feel like that jerking away of your dream is an inevitability so predetermined that it's something you need to consider and plan for and plan against and somehow not let it defeat you, even though the most optimistic person should probably realistically count on that getting you in the end. That's particular. To wash that away or to wish it away is to lose something essential to Lorraine Hansberry's play. There's an incident that happened afterward that shed some light on this. Hansberry was interviewed for the New York Times, and the interviewer misquoted her, and the quote got modified multiple times until it became something that completely blurred this line between the universal and the particular, and it threatened to erase these essential 
qualities and aspects that I talked about just now. She was quoted in the New York Times as saying, I told them this wasn't a Negro play. It was a play about honest-to-God, believable, many-sided people who happened to be Negroes. Hansberry clipped this article out, put it into her scrapbook, and wrote, Never said no such thing, with the no all caps and underlined. Miss Robertson goofed. Miss Robertson was the interviewer. Miss Robertson goofed. Letter sent post-haste. Tune in next week, Hansberry wrote. But the Times never printed the correction. A month later, the quote was repeated in the New York Times, and then the quote spread everywhere. It was used by critics and essayists all over, and it was shortened, and it was modified. Now it was about Hansberry herself. The quote became, quote, I'm not a Negro writer, but a writer who happens to be a Negro, end quote. It's not something she said. Well, what's wrong with that? I'm not a Negro writer, but a writer who happens to be a Negro. What's wrong with that? Isn't that like saying that Chekhov isn't a Russian writer, but a writer who happens to be Russian? Don't we want to drop the labels and give writers credit for being bigger than any particular group? Just give them credit for being a writer? I think the answer to that is yes, but... Yes, but, well, first of all, we don't want anyone to be misquoted if they didn't say something. We don't want that to be something that's attributed to them. But getting back to the point, I think the answer is yes, but. Yes, but. We want to celebrate the universality of A Raisin in the Sun because it's a great work of art that anyone, anywhere can believe in and find meaning in. But if you push that too hard, you only ask white people to make one concession. Black people are human beings, too. They're just like everyone else. And white people make that concession and say, great, I just watched a play. I was moved. I cried. I felt the pain of the struggle. I rejoiced. I admired the acting. I admired the writing. And you know, that could have been about white people. And Lorraine Hansberry said, yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, it's true. Black people are human beings, too. They're many-sided. That's why this is something that is beyond just a protest protest drama. It's more than that. There is universality here. Describing a family you can find your own family in. Yes, but. The but here is don't stop there. Don't sanitize this. Recognize the humanity and say that it's there, but don't ignore that there is a difference. It isn't the same. The struggles and the success are not the same. You can't say that it could have been about white people. It would not be the same if it was, because the context for the struggles and the success or the potential success are not the same. Lorraine Hansberry didn't live long. And after she became a celebrity and famous for this play, she met with Bobby Kennedy and she wrote essays and articles and lectured and advocated. She wrote some more plays, but nothing had the same success as this one. Her autobiography was published posthumously. And her former husband, Robert Nemiroff, turned those writings into a play that was successful. But for literature, she truly made her mark 
with a raisin in the sun. She's one of literature's comets. Streak through the sky and die young. That's the play that reminds us of how a set of universal themes, when blended with the particular, can become a great work of art, and how even when themes are universal, being black can give them a kind of additive or accelerant, a plus feature. That's how it works in America. You root for underdogs? Well, let me show you some. You fight injustice? Wait until you see this. You think poverty grinds you down? Well, this is Poverty Plus. And if there's optimism, it's hard won. It's brighter for the struggle. If there's perseverance, it's deeper and more impressive because the hardships are greater. If there's anger, it has a deeper well to draw from. And if there's injustice, it's more widespread. It's more frustrating. It's historical in context, and it's got more all-encompassing aspects to it. Centuries of history have gone into this injustice. Institutions have been molded around it. To triumph in the face of that is a more emotional triumph, too. Reaching the peaks are a greater accomplishment because the climb is longer and more arduous, and there's more that goes into it. Something that shouldn't be lost or overlooked. That's something particular. And there's also the particularity that the triumphs might not be such triumphs. The struggle might be different, but so too might the success. It's all important to take in when we watch a play like this, just like it's important to keep it in mind as we live our lives, whether we're here or there, black or white or whoever we are. Keep it all in mind. Embrace the emotion, but at the same time, treat the experience with the intellectual complexity that it deserves. Remember that to be young and gifted might be universal. To be young and gifted and black is particular. going to do it for this episode of the history of literature my thanks to lorraine hansberry and ruby d and langston hughes and sydney poitier you have made this a very rich episode to research man oh man check out a raisin in the sun the film if you get the chance we've got some frederick Douglass coming up where we will celebrate his fight for literacy and literacy in general the power of it and the power it unlocked for him we'll also travel to japan pretty soon that's right around the corner, and to Brazil, and to Colombia, and New Jersey, and Miami, Florida. We are a part of the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. Learn more about us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.